In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an amazing guest here with me, Samantha. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here, Pam. Thanks so much for having me. Such an honor to have you here today, Samantha. Honestly, I mean, you do so much. You have your talk show, you have your CEO, you've got all this amazingness happening in your life. And I can't wait to sort of dig into it all. And I I guess my opening question to you would be, you know, what inspired your journey to where you are today? Man, that's just such a long thing. I don't even know how to start that. So my undergraduate degree was in international relations, and that's how I kind of became exposed to seeing how women and girls suffer in conflict and just seeing how kind of few women leaders there were and being exposed to, you know, even even today, if you look at our Congress, like we have, you know, a record amount of women, it's still only 29% women starting to see like, why are women not in more leadership positions? And then my master's degree focused at the Fletcher School focused on, it's called global gender analysis. So it's basically this appreciation that the world was created by and for men. And so if we think about it that way, that means that from the chair I'm sitting in, which I had to put a pillow behind because I'm not big enough to fit the chair, you know, to the temperature in the office, you know, which is always set to a male's body temperature to how refugees responded to in crisis. It's always based on just like a male norm. And then this whole concept of gender came out and it was like, okay, like for example, you know, men and women in refugee camps, they need different things. So, you know, and depending on their age, they need different things. Like women experience sexual violence and they have to walk far for water. And so there need to be things to ameliorate that. For men, there might not be any psychosocial support or programming for men who are victims of sexual violence because Mm. that's not like expected. So there's like, it's a way that kind of men and women are both kind of disserved when you don't consider gender. And then I've also been coaching women for like 10 years on and off, like not a time, never had like a time, it's never my full-time thing, but on mm-hmm. empowerment, self-confidence, self-esteem, stepping into their power. And that has kind of influenced what I'm doing now, which is this women leadership program, which is a combination of coaching and feminist leadership curriculum and understanding gender and inclusion and courage uh, and being inspired by all sorts of different women. I love it. You're in such a diverse world of things and I love it so much. Now I have to ask you, who or what inspired you on the journey to, was it internet in your undergrad, your first major, what inspired you to that route? Cause it's like super niche and specific. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's funny. It's like, I went to a public high school in Connecticut. We studied America. It was America, America, America. And some more, like, let's throw in another dash of America with an AP on it. There was no world history. There was no international relations. Like, it was a small town in Connecticut. And Connecticut was pretty progressive and, like, exposed. So the fact that, like, my high school didn't have it in Fairfield County, which is the richest county in the world, it's, like, kind of weird. Or not the world, the country. And then when I got to 
to, I went to Tufts undergrad and I didn't even know Tufts has a really strong IR program, but I just went to Tufts because I got waitlisted at Yale, Harvard, Dartmouth, and Columbia. And so I was like, oh, this school called Tufts let me in. I guess I'm going there. <laughs> I, just, I literally had no idea. And then Tufts is really well known for its international relations program. Mm. And so when I was there, there was a really cool place called the Institute for Global Leadership, which was founded by this amazing man named Sherman Teichman, who's like a visionary. And it had a signature program called EPIC, Education for Public Inquiry and International Citizenship. And it changed themes every year. And instead of having a professor come in, every class was a guest speaker that had to do with that topic. So, and the class was doubly as hard as everything else. You know, instead of an hour and a half, it was two and a half hours. You had thousands of pages of reading. So my freshman year, I was like a psych major and I was doing theater and I was like, psychology is like boring because it just comes a second nature. My mom's a therapist. I just kind of knew psychology and I was like, there's gotta be something else. And then the topic for that year was my sophomore year was called the politics of fear. And I was like, that sounds cool. I don't even really understand what it is, but it's like the combination of psychology, which is fear, right? Emotions and politics. Right. And so I applied for that program, got into that program. And that really changed my life. I was exposed to, you know, it's, it's just kind of sad when you look at American education. Like I didn't know anything about the war in Rwanda, the war in Bosnia. I just remember, you know, international events from my youth. It's sad. Like, why was I not, or we're learning about world war II, but like you know, I don't think I ever learned anything past World War II. No really critical analysis of Vietnam, which was really important. It's just kind of like, oh, we were embarrassed about that, so we're going to skip that. Nothing about what happened with the end of the Cold War, which is like changed the world that we live in today. Obviously not the Japanese internment, although that was World War II, but, and nothing that happened in the 90s. And I ended up coming a full circle because we studied Bosnia a lot in the war in Bosnia in my class. And then I ended up doing an internship at the State Department in Bosnia two summers ago and wow. worked in Bosnia for the summer on the economics and, and uh, political desk. Wow. So it was cool to like come full circle and be like, okay, I studied this place for months and months. Now I want to be on the ground and like figure it out myself. It's interesting what's glamorized. Who cares about Monica Lewinsky? Like when the world is going through so many different things and it's just like, it's almost like blinders are on, you know, like with the media, yeah. it's really happening. And that's the other thing that I'm doing, Pam, which I think I've told you about is I host a talk show called Samantha Politics. Yes. And I'm trying to cover underreported countries from a woman's perspective. So I've covered Yemen with, and I, it was cool. I had like a woman who, was the head of the embassy in Yemen. But then I also had a woman who's working on like anti-violent extremism programs on the ground in Yemen. So these like two different perspectives, but I'm trying to expose people to things that are happening around the world in like a relatable and interesting way. And in a way that it's interesting because it's like the policy community just assumes that like, you know, everything, like, you know, all the basics. Like, I didn't know where, like how the war in Yemen started or what was really going on. I had to like dedicate time to, to understanding it myself. And then I want to walk the audience through it. So I'm not just jumping in and using big words and, you know, assuming everyone knows who the Houthis are and who this person is and that person is like, you know, we all have limited time. And so how can you break these things down so they're relatable and understandable and get people to care? Right. Right. That's so interesting. And that's fascinating how all these things are underreported and seeing it from a woman's perspective. I love that you're doing that. I think it's so unique. So now with that, with all the cool stuff that you're up to, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? I'm just interested. 
a movie star. Yeah, I wanted to be a movie star. No joke. I was an actress and a singer since I was, you know, I was performing on professional stages at age eight. What? And I've been singing since I was four. I was in voice lessons my whole life until my parents stopped paying for them. Then I was like, oh, crap, I don't want to pay $150 an hour. But I think, and this is what exposure, right? It's like, like you're saying, it's like, what are the things that you know about when you're little? You know what's like in the kids' books, a doctor, a lawyer. Like there's no diplomats in kids' books. That should you know? be changed, Samantha. That should be changed. <laughs> like, Maybe that's your next endeavor. Samantha politics, kids' book. Or like politicians. Like people don't, like kids don't know what that. It's like very, you know, the construction worker, the teacher. Like it's very classical careers. Yeah. And so I didn't really know what was out there. But what's so interesting is that a lot of those things I do know, I mean, I'm essentially performing when I do my show. Exactly. And I facilitate workshops on women's leadership and inclusion. And, and so that takes my theater training as well of like, how do you hold a captive audience? How do you like pause for dramatic effect? How do you make sure people are understanding you? How do you connect with people? So my theater training has actually been, and I, I do a lot of keynotes. I'm very comfortable on a, like throw me on a stage in front of a million people. I'm, I'm the happiest girl alive. And most people can't do that. So it's just, you know, that training, if maybe if I'd said I wanted to be a diplomat, maybe I wouldn't have taken voice lessons or been in plays or done anything. And then I wouldn't be where I am now. So I love it. But see how it always correlates. I asked that yeah. question because there is always a connection to what somebody is doing now. Always. Weirdly yeah. enough, weirdly enough, some way it's connected, which is like the coolest thing in the whole wide world. Like you said, now, now you're able to, you're on a stage. You are your own movie star in your own way, you know, which is so yeah. exciting. And I and, love that. And the difference is, you know, now, because I've been reflecting on this, because I, I mean, I spent six years like as a professional actress, but I was always reading someone else's script. And so, and like a lot of female roles are not, they just have no substance because most screenwriters are men, most directors are men, most producers are men. And, you know, it's just the love interest who shows her boobs at the end and, you know, says stupid things. And not to say like, there's some great roles out there for women, but there's not that many. Yeah. And so it's really powerful now getting to perform in my own way, but I'm doing something that's super intellectual and like, it's my script. I'm myself. I get to interview ambassadors and human rights activists and people on the ground, you know, in crazy places and you know, provide my own analysis. I'm not providing someone else's analysis. And so I actually think I'm like happier now in a sense than I was when I was walking into an audition and reading, you know, the script for the, the hot girl in American Pie. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Now I love that you are taking your reins and basically moving in your own route, which is so amazing and, and exciting. And I mean, you know, throughout your life and your experiences leading up to where you are today. So is there a specific person that has inspired you? So I was inspired a lot. So I, I worked for, after graduate school, I worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign. She's amazing. Anyone who says she's not likable, you don't know her, you haven't met her. She's wonderful and warm and empathetic and like lovely tangent. But I was definitely inspired by her and all of the crap that she went through that was so unnecessary. Um, like, it was like, like I saw something once that said like, if Britney Spears survived, like, you know, 2008, you can survive this. And Mine is more like if Hillary Clinton survived 2016, like you can survive today, you know? Like, yeah, like, totally. totally. Uh, but the, the other thing I found really inspiring, so I ended up you know, not working for the administration because Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up at Ashoka, which is this really cool nonprofit 
that supports social entrepreneurs around the world um, who are doing amazing, innovative things. So from, you know, this woman, Shad, who's working with illiterate women in Pakistan on political participation to working on human trafficking in India, Hasina, and devising this whole new system of like policing, protection, prevention, supply chains to combat human trafficking to this amazing man, Gary Barker, who's like reinventing how the world thinks about masculinity and healthy masculinities. And I was really inspired, especially by the women that I saw and that I spoke to because I tried to do a podcast, but then I didn't do a podcast because it wasn't good enough. But I, um, you know, I was just so inspired by these women that were in the most difficult of circumstances. They were getting threatened by, you know, Shad was basically got the International Women of Courage Award in the U.S. And they said to her, don't come back to Pakistan. Like the Taliban is going to kill you. Like, don't come back. And she said to me, like, Sam, like, that's my life's work. Like, that's my work. And she went back and she just moves every couple of months. You know, like she doesn't have stability. And Hasina's driver, when she was in the car, was run off the road and he died by like some people that didn't want human trafficking to do fraud. And women I talked to working on genital mutilation have gross, you know, rocks and stones thrown at them. Like, so I was just really inspired by these women that were not coming from wealth and who were going through these incredibly difficult circumstances to create change and they've still persisted and they still inspire me and I have a lot of them weaved into my women's leadership course and we look at their styles of leadership that's incredible I mean they're fearless you know the fact that she went back she's like oh the Taliban wants to kill me okay I'll just move like most people will be like I'll just stay right here <laughs> right like right. I'm gonna leave now right but like the courage and the fearlessness is there's something to be said about that and I love that you took your inspiration and you're creating like, all right, how can we learn from this? Yeah, can we just absolutely. talk a little bit about like their style of leadership and like how you sort of incorporated it? Just a little sneak peek into your, uh, into your world. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I cover this in my women's leadership course that I teach, but I did this event in Italy with like 20 women social entrepreneurs from around the world. And, and we started to look at how do women lead differently? How do they change systems differently? How are they doing things differently for men? And again, if I didn't have a gender analysis, I would have just been like, what are Ashoka fellows doing broadly? I wouldn't have said, what are the women doing that's different? Um, and so certain themes started to emerge like that, you know, women aren't as keen to build huge enterprises. They don't feel like they have to be in a million countries with yeah. 50,000 employees and making billions of dollars. Like some women want to keep things small because they have more control, it's better work-life balance. They have... And they want to have a deeper impact. So they would like some women social entrepreneurs would rather, you know, really affect change in a community that lasts forever than work with, you know, 50 different communities in Africa and only do something that has very superficial impact. Also like collaboration and like sharing power was really big. It was like, I don't, I don't need to take all the credit for this. I don't need to be, you know, if I'm doing a project in India, I don't need to be the implementer in South Africa. It doesn't need to be under my you know, my tarp, like it can be under someone else's tarp. I can train them, but it doesn't even have to be, a, my company doesn't need credit for that. All right. So the collaboration was like really apparent and power sharing innovation of just how they went about things. And I mean, and courage. I mean, that was something like, what's really interesting, Pam, is that like, I've now read pretty much every book on women's leadership ever written and feminist leadership, not once 
is the word courage mentioned. No way. I swear to God. One book says that they are, women are positive deviants and, or like bravery. And but they always mention the things that are, that make sense for our gender. Empathy, collaboration, consensus building, like kindness, love, like all these things that, that seem like they're, you know, like they fit within what's comfortable for us to think about women. But I right. think it's scary for people to think, or they just don't think about women as bright and courageous and like just fearless. You know, that's actually one of my conclusions I came to. And I really teach a, a big segment in the course about courage. Mm. And what does that look like? And so it's not just courage to fight the Taliban. It's courage to break off on your own and start your own business. It's courage to not get married and have kids and take a non-traditional path. Like there's so many ways that courage manifests itself in, you know, women leaders. And, and the woman leader also doesn't mean has to be the CEO of a company. A woman can lead in so many different ways. Oh, totally. Totally. Like you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, you mentioned that and like, it's like, I'm more of like a listener. So like audiobooks are really good for me. And like this, but well, my schedule is so crazy. Like I want to read more. I want to learn more. So I haven't gotten into the female leadership. So I find it so wild that courage is not mentioned once because right when you said that in my mind, what popped up was like, well, guys aren't afraid to say what's on their mind. They don't really have a filter right? Like they just go out there. They just do it. Like they don't think twice. Like we have the second guessing. I feel like a lot of women, like that's our biggest problem as a species. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think, you know, because it, once you second guess, then the fear starts to set in. And then that's when you lose your courage. Whereas men, I feel like they're just conditioned to like, Hey man, just go out there and say it, go out there and do it. Like they're like conditioned not to think twice. And maybe that's the big difference, you know, between the, between the two. I don't know. But I just think it's an interesting observation because what I see in, in my world of real estate development and construction and all that stuff is like, guys, are just they just go out there and do it, right? Whereas sometimes I'm like, should I do this? And not just go out there, Pam, and just do it. So I don't know. It's a phenomenon. <laughs> There's research that women are more risk averse than men. Yes. Which in some cases is really valuable. For example, like thinking about long-term consequences to things. Yes. Like, which, you know, a lot of these tech companies like Facebook was just like, well, let's just go out. And like, I really hate the, the mantra in tech of like, what the heck is it? Like, you know, break stuff and then fix it, you know, go fast, break stuff and then fix it. Like, okay, that's fine. If you're like working on a sparkling probiotic drink, you know, but it's not fine when you're, you know, putting a tech, a tech product into the hands of people who could then spark a genocide, which is what happened with Facebook and Myanmar. You can't, you can't break stuff when you're having an effect on people's lives like that. So that's where I think women's, you know, kind of risk aversion, like they always say, like, what if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman sisters? It probably wouldn't have happened because they wouldn't have been so reckless. But the other side of it is exactly what you said, is that this risk aversion and this, and I see this with private coaching, like cyclical thinking of like, like just like these stories that just go on in women's heads about things that just are not real. Well, what if this, and then if this, and then this person, it's like, okay, what is the evidence for like, what is your thought process going on? What is the evidence against it? And like, what's the reality here? Let's look at the reality. But you have to talk through that. I mean, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of limiting beliefs. There's another part of my course I call deconstructing our inner patriarchy. There's also just a lot of things that we've been told as women. Subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was reflecting today how my parents always told me to marry rich. 
They mm. never told me, you go be rich. You go make money. That's so interesting. Because see, my dad, that what he said to me was like, you're going to stand on your own two feet. You're going to be rich and no man. He's like, the man's actually going to bow down to you. Just telling you that. Like, that's what he used to tell me. I was like seven years old. I'm like, okay, dad. <laughs> but like the subconscious, you said. Huge difference. Huge difference. difference. And the culture you grow up in. You know, I had a client once who was, she was from Ghana. But, you know, she's like, I grew up that the woman's supposed to serve the man. Mm-hmm. And we're not, you know, we're supposed to be seen and not heard. And we're not supposed to make trouble. And we're not supposed to stand out. And that was hurting her professionally in her career because she was always terrified to speak up and she was always in the background and she never spoke her voice. And I'm like, but, you know, especially in America, if you don't speak your voice, you're not in the conversation. There's not that many people like me that are, you know, specialized in inclusive facilitation that know how to bring you in. Like most people are just like, all right, whoever talks, great, we're moving on. And so then your opinion and your voice isn't heard. And especially if you're the only woman or the only woman of color, that means that perspective is gone because you didn't speak up. Right. So I work, I work a lot with women on getting through that kind of fear. I love that. So, so what inspired your route to want to open your own business? Cause you have so much experience and it's like, cause you know, cause there's just a lot of women who always second guess too. Like, do I work corporate or do I go out on my own? And every, I find a lot of people teetering. So it's like, what made you take that jump and just be like, all right, I'm going full speed. You know, <laughs> you know what's funny? It was circumstance and guidance. I moved to Spain with my ex-boyfriend or my you know, boyfriend at the time. And I was working in tech and I was making really good money um, for a company out in San Francisco. And then um, they were doing some things that I did not find palatable in the kind of data space. Um, mm-hmm. And I brought it up and was laid off promptly. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, mid-March. And at the time, like my ex thought he was going to, he was in business school there, thought he was going to be there till the end of December. As it turns out, he was only there till the end of August, but still it was like, okay, well, I have, you know, at least five months. And then at that point I was very much in love. So I was following him around and I was like, I want to, then we're going to go back to the U S. So like I interviewed for some jobs in Europe, but then I was like, well, then he wants to go back to DC. So then I'm going to be working in Geneva. Like that's not going to work. And then I remember I had lunch with this guy who was hilarious, who's British. And he's like, and I was like, cause I was talking about getting a job in Spain. And he's like, don't work in Spain. Don't work in Spain. Like you're going to make no money. Like they're not as ambitious as you. Like it's going to drive you crazy. It's patriarchal. Like enjoy yourself. Like do whatever you want to do. Just like you don't want to get a job here. Okay. Well, I guess I'm not getting a job in Spain. And it was like, you know, compared to a US salary, it was like making half as much and working more. So I was like, this sucks. And then it really kind of, you know, my mom was like, who's a, who's a psychologist was like, you know, my parents, are, my parents are both entrepreneurs. My dad's a doctor, my mom's a psychologist, but they both have their own businesses. Mm. And so my mom was like, why don't you do your own thing? And I was like, what do I do? And then it really came to fruition. I was, I spoke at a conference called the Horasis Conference, which is actually coming up and I'm speaking at again this year in Portugal. And I spoke on a couple of different panels. One was on the Michi movement. One was on diversity and inclusion. And I can't remember the other. I had gone to this, like, and this is where women supporting women really matters. I met a girl who was awesome. And she invited me to this like women's breakfast one day. How can we help? Sorry, birds. Like, how can we help each other? Like, how can we leverage one another's talents? Who needs what? And I met this really wonderful woman and she came to one of the panels I was on. And afterwards, you know, I said to her, like, maybe I'll be a public speaking coach or something. And, and afterwards, 
she was like, Sam, you knew more than all of the people on the panel. And she was right. I knew, I knew more than all of them. Like the BBC reporters were coming up to me and being like, oh, that was brilliant, blah, blah, blah. She's like, you know gender, you know women's rights. Whatever you do, this is what you should be doing. Like you're passionate about it, you're knowledgeable about it. And so, and then there was the other thing about being in Spain. And this is why I get so pissed off at the argument that like immigrants are like a weight on the country. I didn't have a work visa in Spain. So in some circumstances, I was kind of like, you know, I wasn't an immigrant, I wasn't, but I was living there. And so even like getting a Spanish job, like who's going to sponsor me? So it's kind of that circumstance of being in another country where I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't even get like a part-time job mm. in a coffee shop or something because I didn't have a visa. Interesting. Wow. So it was really being in Spain, having that time to think, speaking at that conference, having, you know, these other women guide me, my amazing mom who was like, you know, stop doing random stuff, like put it, like everything I do now is under one bucket. Like it's under like diversity and inclusion, women's rights. Like it's, it's all related. I'm not like freelance writing over here and doing this over here and coaching yeah. over here. And there's no relationship. Like it all weaves together. And so I was like, put it under one bucket. And that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of the story of how I started off. I love that so much. And you just kicked it off and you were just like, no, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to move forward. I love that. I love yeah. that. What's been like your best moment, I would say, your most favorite moment in, in the work that you've done? I, I just love facilitating workshops. Like I love my women's leadership course so much. Like just, you know, women from all over the world, different, you know, races and religions and industries. And like, it's freaking magical to like be on Zoom and to just see these women relating to each other that in any, like there's no way in hell they ever would have come together. Um, under these circumstances. And so it's just amazing to see all these women that are different, like helping one another, learning from each other, you know, having moments like, you know, there was, there's, you know, a white woman in the group and she said to the black woman, how do I raise my kids to support your kids, to stand up for your kids? Hmm. And like, these are the moments that we need in America. Like it's happening right here on my Zoom call where I've facilitated this space where they feel like they can ask these questions. And then just watching what happens to women, you know, them ask for the money that they want and deserve and get it and take the launch to start their own business and like get this courage that they never had to do what they've been wanting to do. And now they have the support of other women. They have my support. They have like kind of organizing principles. They understand how to move forward if they want to create change. So I think there's that. And then, I mean, I love the talk show. I love interviewing these badass women that have, Joanne on my show last week was like, I slept under my desk for three weeks in Yemen, like no big deal. I mean, like people, women have been through terrorist attacks. Wow. Like it's wild at, in like crazy places. And so getting to highlight their voices and talk about, you know, issues and it's, yeah, it's awesome. I love it. That's amazing. That's amazing. And was there a person in particular that inspired you sort of most throughout your journey? I know you mentioned that the women that you came across, but anyone like personal to you growing up? Well, I think being a Jewish woman has always been important for me. Mm -hmm. Like I was, went to a Jewish day school and it was Judaism. It's like all about strong women, like Golda Meir and like names I can't even remember, but it's really about raising strong, independent women. Mm. And so I think that influenced me. And I think my mom's been a really good big influence of, you know, telling me I needed to be an entrepreneur, encouraging me, seeing where, you know, that I'm talented. 
support watching my show, you know, when my show had no viewers, my mom was at least in the chat asking questions of my guests. (laughs) I think especially after coaching women, it's like, you know, this too, like your parents have such an influence on you and what you feel capable of and what you choose to do. And I see a lot of women who are held back because they are living their lives for their parents, not for themselves. Mm. Parents have certain expectations of them and you know, the freedom to kind of study international relations instead of becoming a, my sister's a lawyer, my dad's a doctor, like everyone's like kind of on a traditional career path. I love that. And you mentioned the story when, when we spoke last regarding your sister. Oh yeah. Her journey and how that's. Should I tell cool. that story? It's wild. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause you had mentioned that it was a, it was a big influence on you too. So my little sister is eight years younger than me and she, when she was born kind of knew something was wrong with her before it wasn't sure what so it turns out she had a genetic disease called canavan disease so canavan spelled c-a-n-a-v-a-n neurodegenerative disease prevalent in ashkenazi jews but not only in the jewish population it means that the kids can't walk can't talk can't hold their heads up they can't really do anything they're wow. pretty immobile they communicate via sounds eye blinking you know they can laugh and smile but it's awful and my parents were like, okay, well, what do we do? Where's the cure? Where's the surgery? What, you know, and they kept getting these answers. Like, there's no cure. And I was like, well, where's the research? And they're like, there's no research being done on this disease. Like, you have no hope. Your child's going to die in an inst- like put her in an institution, and let her die. Wow. Like she'll, she'll die by age five or 10. Jeez. And oh it's like, God. what parent wanted to hear that? Right. And so my parents, you know, really invented what's called now has a name called patient advocacy because my dad is very much like a doer and he was a physician and he was like, I'm not just letting my kid die, like F you. And so, you know, my childhood was my parents, you know, my dad just knocked on every door and called this doctor and this researcher who connected him to this person, who connected him to this person, to this person. And finally, they brought my little sister into Yale to these two researchers who work on Parkinson's. And she was like, see these like big saucer blue eyes and like these cute glasses and these blonde curls. And she was just like sweet as pie. And, you know, we're like, help, can you research this disease? Like we'll raise money, like help us save our child. And these two researchers were like, all right, if you can raise some money, like we'll do it. Wow. And so now that's called patient advocacy because it used to be that researchers chose what they worked on. Patients didn't come say, can you work on my kid's disease and fund them? And now that's like a new model that actually a lot of like wealthier people that have money will be like, well, my kid has this disease. Let me go pay some researchers to work on it. So yeah, my childhood, uh, I was in clubhouse today talking in some philanthropy group and was talking about how I was selling raffle tickets at age eight to raise money for research for Lindsay. Uh, And then, so fast forward 18 months later, my sister was the first person in the world to be treated with gene therapy for a brain disease. Wow. Uh, she was, you know, a little baby. They drilled six holes in her head in New Zealand and, you know, to put this gene in that her brain was missing Wow! and it was wild. And then within like three months of the surgery, she started to hold her head up. She started to track. She was making more sound. She was more aware. And we found out she'd grown myelin in the brain, which was like a scientific miracle. Yeah. And then that's all because my parents were like, there's no hope. This is impossible. I think that's why I have this ethos now of like anything's possible. Like if that was possible and usually it takes years to come up with any kind of experimental treatment. I mean, research takes forever. 
the fact that they got something that they could do within a year is wild. That is so wild. I was going to say, I was like, hold on, because they abdicated. And I was like, now I see the correlation of your inspiration, how, why you're so inspired to go out there and advocate for it for women, equality yeah, for women, exactly. inclusivity and diversity, which I absolutely love. Oh my God. Wow. What a story. That's incredible. And people who don't have voices. I mean, my sister literally can't talk. Wow. She literally has no voice. And so if we hadn't spoken for her, that would have been it. And so to advocate for those who are voiceless is incredibly important to me and to, you know, give them a voice. But so my sister, I should mention, so my sister was supposed to die by age 10. She's 26 now. God bless her. Oh my God. She's wild. She's 26 and she is, so she's had three gene therapies. And then I kind of took over running the foundation though. I don't do a very good job of it, but I took over this, our foundation is called the Canavan Research Foundation. If you want to support it or look at the work, Canavan, www.canavan.org. And so right now, after 10 more years of research, there's a, no, like 16 more years, there hasn't been a gene therapy. And the FDA just approved the latest gene therapy and 10, or I'm not sure how many kids, but a bunch of little kids are going to be treated. And we're hoping the problem is my sister's older. And so she won't show the results that little kids will. So we're really hoping that she's going to be treated. But even if, you know, just these other kids are treated, I mean, this all is because of my parents. Like it's all like, so yeah, I'm really, I really admire them and what they, what they did and anything's possible, right? Nothing's, nothing's in stone. That's so insane that they were able, like they just kept fighting and they just kept going and they just kept saying, no, you know, no, like there's more, there's definitely an answer. And I say that all the time. I'm like, this is a will, there's a way, some way, somehow. I like that too. Like I go into a situation and other people are like, oh, there's a problem, unfixable. I'm like, no, no, no. Like there's a way to fix this. Like, let, let me get my hands on it, see what's going on. I'm very resourceful. I'll figure out a way. Like, cause like, and like some of the most basic stuff immobilizes people like, oh, no solution. Like, no, 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 there's a solution. <laughs> Let's just figure out what it is. And who do we need to, to leverage to make that happen? Oh, hundred percent. I love that. I love it. You touched on so many incredible things and like, you know, in, in your line of work, what would be sort of your best advice or top tips in um, inclusivity and leadership and sort of like what you, what you preach the most to, in like say in your courses or anything like that, what would be like your best, best piece of advice there? Man, there's just so much because it's different. I mean, it's important to know too, that what I'm teaching, I do teach inclusive leadership as part of my women's leadership course, but in diversity and inclusion training, it's different. There's different lessons there. There's different things to learn. The major thing with the women's leadership course is just to know that the leadership of the past is no longer the leadership that we need now. Mm-hmm. That the way that leadership was taught was not in a global pandemic. It was not in a incredibly politically divisive environment where people can't have civil conversations with each other. I mean, myself included sometimes. The traits and the things that you need as a leader have evolved. They're different. Right. There's, there was no social media. You know, now people have social media and they expect their voices to be heard. Millennials don't stay in career. They don't stay at a company for 25 years. They moved. Millennials care more about social purpose. So if your company can't identify what, is, what its social purpose is or what its impact is, you're gone. They will leave. Uh, so there's just so many things that have happened. I think the confluence of social media, protests, the pandemic that have come together that have really redefined the way that we need to think about leadership and the way that we need to approach and, and do leadership differently. I love that. I love that. And now, you know, 
my final question to you, which I always ask everyone is, you know, what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? Don't worry if you don't become a movie star. <laughs> I love it. I'd say there's, there's other, there's other paths to shine. Like, I think one of my defining moments was when someone said, cause like this woman who had been like a screenwriter, she wrote like all the X-Files said, you know, I had a meeting with her. She said, you're going to be a star, honey. You're going to be a star. So I always had that in my head. Like, I'm going to be a star. Like I'm destined for fame and, and greatness. And then I was like, I guess, and then someone was like, you can be a star in another way. You don't have to be a movie star. Like I could be a politician. And like now, like I would love to run for Congress at some point. Yeah, girl, you go girl. I would like, that's a way to like, and then to like use that fame or whatever it is to do good things for the world, to empower women, to empower the voiceless, to empower refugees and minorities and give people equality and give special needs kids healthcare and schooling. So there's other ways that you can be, you know, have that, that stage without having to be a movie star. I love that so much. And you are such a superstar in what you do. So, I mean, for the listeners who want to check you out and see what you're up to, like, what are you up to these days? I know you've mentioned so many things, your leadership challenge, you've got courses, you've got, you know, your keynote speaking, you're doing all these amazing things and workshops. So tell us what you're, what you're up to. Now. I would first say I have a newsletter that I send out with all sorts of resources and it kind of keeps people abreast of the shows I'm doing. So to get on that newsletter, you would text in the word empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R to 66866 if you want to get on the list and know what's going on. Um, but the big, the two big things are the Women's Leadership Challenge, speaking at events, doing events at companies around women's leadership uh, and diversity and inclusion and the talk show. And now I, you know, we're in the talk show, we're getting you know, over a thousand views a show. And so now it's looking for sponsorships and partners and, uh, and with the women's leadership course, I'm also looking for sponsors. If anyone's like interested in sponsoring women who are from underserved communities or from the global South, especially women of color to go through the program. That's something I'm starting to look at because I want those voices in, but they can't necessarily afford it. Um, So those are the main things that I'm working on. And you know, what's really refreshing, Pam, is that Trump is out of office. So it gives me one less thing to worry about. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love it, right? Gotta love it. The government is now being run by adults. (laughs) (laughs) Politics right there. I love that name, by the way. I I love what you're up to. And like, I, oh man, you're just such a total rock star. And now you got to let everybody know where, where to find you. Yeah. So my website is uh, empowerglobal.net. So you can join that. The Facebook page for Samantha Politics, which is a mouthful. There's a Facebook page for Samantha Politics, which you can subscribe to. And then I also have a Facebook group, which is a free Facebook group called the Women's Leadership Laboratory, which you can which you can do. And then also like you could always email my company info at empowerglobal.net for speaking engagements or workshops or whatever. And I'm out there on Twitter and all those things and Clubhouse and I'm not my hands full. I'm doing webinars and I'm doing a webinar at the end of March about finding your intrinsic power, which is, wow. I call it, I kind of came up with something I call the intrinsic power map. So mm-hmm. if you get on my mailing list, uh, then I'll, you'll get info about that webinar that's coming up. So it's kind of a lower price thing to come in on. Samantha, it's such an honor to have you here today. I love your story. I love your passion, your inspiration, and just thank you for all of that. And just continue with your amazing work. You are a freaking rock star. The
So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift. And join us on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>